Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Well, amen. Please be seated. And those who are going to Little Worship can be dismissed at this time. You know, it's, it's singing songs like that. It, it, you know, we have these, these uh, things that um, the Netflix show, ironically, um, you know, the show Black Mirror, that we all have these little black mirrors in our pockets and these black mirrors mounted to our wall uh, that we gaze into, um, and they distract us. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a world of a lot of distraction, tons of distractions. And, and yet, as, as we've just sang, who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. It's this famous Spurgeon sermon where he mentions how awesome the waves are that, that bring us crashing into the rock of Jesus, um, that there are storms in our life that happen, I mean, big-time crisis moments in which the black mirror can no longer uh, calm our souls or distract us. Um, but we see that we need something way more substantial. Um, and so this morning, uh, dealing with storms, uh, what better way to end our sermon, our summer sermon series um, on our summer vacation uh, than with a, a cruise. Any of y'all like going on cruises? I know some people either love or hate going on cruises. My dad says he hates going on a cruise. He went like seven years ago with mom down to like the Cozumel. He said he ain't ever getting on a boat in his life. And then this week he told me that they're doing an another cruise, that mom got him back in on it, okay? Um, look, this morning uh, we are ending our series with another cruise, uh, but this time not with Jonah on the high seas, but with Paul. And, and before we read... Uh, please know that, that what we're about to read is true. Like, this actually happened. And uh, first, we know that because, well, it's, it's God's inspired word in which in the original manuscripts, we know that they are without error, which means uh, we call that the inerrancy the, or the inerrant word of God. Um, but second, even if you're, let's say that you're not a believer here this morning, possibly just kind of skeptical about this whole God's Word thing, um, even so, there are still some literary hints buried within the text itself that testify to this being a historical first-person, like kind of eyewitness account. And you know, throughout the history of literature, the, uh, the long sea voyage is a very common motif, right, from Homer's Odyssey to Swiss Family Robbins, Robinson Crusoe, uh, Crusoe, uh, Master and Commander of that entire series, and, and on and on and on. It's that, that travel uh, narrative, right? Uh, the storm at the high sea, and what are you going to do in the storm? Um, which leads some scholars or skeptical scholars to argue that this, what we're about to read, totally didn't happen. This is just kind of a Christian version. Uh, it's kind of like you know, how Christians do. We take what's popular in the world and we try to kind of make it, you know, we churchify it, right? This is what the Christian church is doing. They're just kind of writing a churchy version of a very popular uh, motif of travel fiction. However, that argument breaks down once you compare elements of, of other fictional accounts written during this time period 
But you'll quickly see that compared to those stories, this doesn't have the romantic flourishing uh, that is common and even really expected in this, this ancient form of literature. But rather, this one sticks out because it reads much more like a captain's log. Uh, this reads like an eyewitness account filled with very precise nautical language. In other words, uh, this, and of course, this, we're only reading a part of it, but this section is like, you know, very, very long section. It reads less like Homer's Odyssey or Swiss Family Robbins and much more like Ernest Shackleton's firsthand account of his shipwreck in Antarctica. And so believe what you will about miracles, but I'm just talking on the literary forensic level, this passage has all the marks of an authentic historical account. Okay? And so with that, uh, let's go to God's true word this morning, uh, board this ship with Paul and with Luke, and see what God has to teach us when the storms come. So this is God's Word, starting with verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that we had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and soon the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it, and we were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Calda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the searches, they, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, and then when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. <laughs> I imagine what they're thinking, like, okay, so the ship's gone, and we're in the middle of the ocean, but we're going to be okay. Um, for this very night, here's how he knew it, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, run aground on some island. So when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors, suspecting that we were nearing land, um, so they, they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we, would, we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. 
for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. This is God's word. Let's pray uh, together. Uh, Father, throughout your word, you tell us that not a hair falls from our head apart from your will, that you know us, that you are so intimately involved with us. Um, And Lord, we see a promise here that not a hair is going to perish from any of their heads there. Uh, Lord, we ask this morning that your spirit would come and and illuminate the scripture. Teach us what, it, what you have to teach us here uh, about storms uh, and how to, to weather storms in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So when the storms come and when your little boat of life gets rocked, um, when the darkness that you face is suffocating, right, And everything you experience, it screams, all is lost. There is no hope. What do you hold on to when all of your false securities have been blown away by the storm? In the tempest, what is the only anchor that will see us through? You know, I mean, if you answer those questions, you're going to be okay in life. And thankfully, we don't have to wait for a storm to come in our own life to learn those answers because throughout the, the Bible, we're going to take a lot of things just from the Bible this morning, and then from this passage, we see that God is, is giving us three things to remember, three things to apply when the storms come. So first, uh, when storms come, when it comes to following Jesus through the storms, um, there's a, a paradox of providence that we need to remember. Paradox of providence. You know, if you're thinking, okay, <laughs> what on the earth does that mean? Um, did you catch what happened there at the end of the, of the passage? So right, they're in this massive storm. Everyone's scared. They're throwing cargo over. They're throwing tackle overboard just to stay afloat. And after days and days of being enveloped in the storm, Luke says, all hope of our being saved was gone. That things were dire. But then... An angel of the Lord visited Paul, and Paul and the angel said, Hey, don't be afraid, y'all. Not a single person on this ship is going to die. Just letting you know, not, nobody's going to die. And that was a, like a sovereign promise from God. But then, down in verse 30 and 31, if you saw that, the sailors were still scared even after Paul said, Hey, y'all don't have to be afraid. We're going to be good. The sailors were still afraid, so, so scared, in fact, that they're trying to, they're trying to escape. They're telling people, we've we got to check the anchor, but really, they're gone. Um, they're out of there. And when Paul heard about this, he told the centurion who's guarding him, and he told the soldiers, look, unless these men stay in the boat, you cannot, you, we cannot be saved. In, in other words, we can't handle the boat without these sailors. And so the soldiers went, they cut the ropes away, they let the lifeboat go. Uh, nobody's leaving this ship. And, and you know, we, we read that, I don't know, I read that, and start doing these theological gymnastics, right? And thinking, oh, wait, hold on just a second. Like, the angel just laid out this providential promise of God. Like, God had spoken, nobody on that ship was going to die in that storm. And Paul believed that, he said that Paul had faith that it would be exactly as God said. However, the minute the sailors tried to leave the ship, Paul said, whoa, 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 whoa. they can't leave. Like, like, if we're going to make it, we, we need them. And so we say, well, what's up with that? Like, is God sovereign? I thought he just sovereignly promised you're going to be okay. 
Like, is God sovereign, or do we kind of need these sailors to make this work out? Well, I'm thankful for theologians like Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul and Derek Thomas and really even the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith for parsing this out because, because this right here, what Paul is pressing into is something that we deal with on a daily basis, right? That's so important and it's easy to forget. That, that when it comes to God's providence, it, it's his orchestration of his sovereign will and all of his creatures and all the universe it's pretty easy to fall into this logical trap. As Keller said, it's tempting for us to become either-or people when it comes to this. Either God is totally in charge, and if he's totally in charge, what, what does it matter what I do? And what does it matter what any of us do? And let's just, it's that, that let go, let God, carry Underwood, Jesus take the wheel, right? And we're going to be fine because God is sovereign. Okay? And people, of course, take this to the, this logical conclusion and say, look, God's going to do what God's going to do, and so why bother? Right? Uh, some people in, in the hyper-Calvinist camp, I don't know if they would do this, some people might do this, but really, like, why bother with evangelism? Why bother with mission? God is sovereign. He's going to do what he does. And that hyper-Calvinism can sound, it can sound kind of religious, but in actuality, it sounds, it's more akin to the fatalism that is found within, you know, atheistic nihilism, right? Since the, the universe is on this course towards <laughs> ash and destruction, and everything is just fatalistically, you know, latched in. And so there's that. Or we can slide in the other direction, and we believe, okay, so, so if what we do matters, then we think, but if it depends on us, then maybe God isn't so sovereign after all. And so then that's kind of another pickle we get into. Okay, well here and throughout the Bible, we, we don't find that. Like you, We don't see either or. But we always find both and. There's a both and to this. That God is 100% in charge. And at the same time, we are 100% responsible for what we do. And so Paul knows that everything is, is that happens is determined by God, uh, and yet God is like this is how sovereign God is. He is so sovereign that even our actions are also involved in bringing about His will. Okay, and just so that we're clear, again, this is God's providential working of His will in creation. Okay, this is not how salvation works because when it comes to salvation, <laughs> we're well aware. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, okay? Uh, we, we can't will ourselves. Dead people can't do anything. Like we can't will ourselves to be saved. But what we find throughout Scripture is that it is God who woos and calls and makes us alive. And maybe even as you're hearing a sermon or you're doing you're something in the means of grace, there's something that's going on inside of you that like, this is, it starts drawing you in, Right? And makes you alive. And in Christ, we are adopted into the redeemed people. And so, like, before anyone, uh, quote, you know, makes a decision for Christ, even though that may be your experience, before you, quote, make a decision for Christ, God has already laid the groundwork in your heart, and he's already He's called you by his irresistible grace. Okay? So this isn't salvation. This is, this is another the theological term called providence. This is God working his sovereign providential uh, will, okay? 
And so when it comes to that, theologians have termed this, uh, and we're going to go a little deep here, but this is so important. This, this light will affect you how you live this afternoon. Um, theologians call, have a term called concurrence. Um, that, or Sproul, as Sproul noted, concurrence refers to the coterminous actions of God and human beings. Okay? That we are creatures with our own will, and we make things happen, yet the causal power we exert is secondary. That God works out his will through the actions of human wills, all the while without violating the freedom of those human wills. Okay. If you're confused, um, look, I learned best through story and pictures. So here's just three quick stories we see in the Bible in which this is just like perfectly laid out. It will make total sense. If you remember in Genesis, we meet this man named Jacob. We, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with Jacob. He's such, like, we love him because he's like, you know, the God of Jacob, right? Uh, God loved Jacob, but if Jacob was our friend, we would want to just beat him up, Okay. But Jacob was the beloved son of Isaac. He was the beloved, right? And it was, that family was the family that God would use to bring about blessing and, and salvation to, to the earth. But Jacob, you know, he didn't sit there twiddling him, his thumbs like waiting for God to zap the blessing down. No, Jacob had to leave. He had to leave his home, and he had to go meet other people. And he had children, and one of those descendants of those children would be Jesus Christ, right? Um, second, Peter, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, this is the sermon that really sparked the, the growth of the early church. G, uh, Peter said, Jesus was offered up by God. Like, okay, God offered Jesus up on the cross, and, and you slayed him. That it was foreordained by God to happen, and yet you, like people, yelled crucify. And then third, maybe the most obvious uh, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, we had this master class of how this, this works. You know, remember, Nehemiah was trying to build the wall, right? Rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And when, when Israel's enemies found out that they were rebuilding the wall, they didn't like that one bit. They weren't happy. They wanted to fight Israel. You know, you're building that wall. And in Nehemiah 4, it, it's, it's starting to appear that they're about to have to do a battle here. All these, all these builders are about to have to fight. And in Nehemiah 4, there's this wonderful promise that, that some of us claim, right? That, okay, when y'all go into battle, God says, I'm going to fight for you. That God fights for us in the storms, in the battle. And Nehemiah was convinced that God would fight. He had faith God would fight. And, and he was also convinced that the work that they were doing was the Lord's work. God would give them the victory. And yet, if you read Nehemiah 4, you see... That Nehemiah still planned, like he still strategized. As Derek Thomas said, Nehemiah could believe in the sovereignty of God, but still have a sword in his hand. Okay? It's this beautiful depiction. Like you read Nehemiah 4, you've got the, guy, the people who are like, they're building the wall, they've got a brick in one hand and a spear in the other hand. And, and, and like, he could believe that God would fight for them, but he also had the responsibility to fight himself. And I know some of y'all are thinking, Richard, none of this sounds very reformed at all because we're, you know, we're used to hearing that, look, you don't do anything, right? You can't earn your salvation. Again, that's salvation. But once you are saved, by golly, there's, there is work for us to do, right? We have a responsibility. 
You say it doesn't sound reformed, but listen to this. An entire paragraph in the Confession of Faith is dedicated to this, that God makes the promise, he, he sets his will, but he enacts his will often through secondary causes. Okay? What did Paul say in Philippians? That we, that you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That means, Westminster, that you have a responsibility here. A, a responsibility to pursue walking in the ways of the Lord. Remember those old paths that we did that, that series about? Like, you have a responsibility to put yourself in those paths. To spend time with God in prayer, uh, reading His Word, gathering with the church. Like, like a, a true responsibility to actively seek fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a responsibility to grow in the faith. But then what did he say? He said, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. And so when the storms come, we trust God, right? We trust his promises. And yet that doesn't mean that we just sit passively waiting for him to miraculously, you know, deliver us from the storm and the hardship. But we remember that often God enacts his sovereign will through the actions of his people, right? It is Paul receiving the promise that, hey, y'all are going to be great. And at the same time, it's like, dude, we got to cut that ship away if we're going to be okay. Which means when the storms come, we trust the promise, all the while actively placing ourselves in the path of grace. And, you know, there's this really great phrase that's been attributed to Oliver Cromwell. I know you've heard it. Uh, that pretty well sums us up. You know, in the battle, uh, Cromwell, allegedly, Cromwell said, Look, hey, men, trust in God, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Okay, trust in God, but be ready. So in, in the storm, we, we remember that paradox, okay? Which then brings us to our, our second and much shorter um, point. The purpose, what's the purpose of storms? You know, when storms come in your life, it's tempting to think God is for sure punishing me. Uh, that God's taken me to the woodshed. And, and of course, we, we know that God disciplines his children. We know that our sin has real life, real world consequences. But if you are a believer, the Bible also tells us that Jesus took the punishment we deserve. Right? That on the cross, Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God. Which means for God to then turn and then punish us would be unjust, unmerciful, and unloving, in which God is none of those. And so if you are in Christ, the, the purpose isn't punishment. Okay? Actually, often, instead of meaning that you've done something wrong, it could very well mean that you're doing something right. Uh, Jesus you know, said, in this world you will have trouble. Um, that it, you, you may have a hellacious life. I love what uh, F.B. Meyer said to this. He said, if I'm told that I'm to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, I'm told it's going to be dangerous. He said, then every jolt along the way will remind me that I am on the right road. I love that. And see, all storms could mean that you're right where God wants you to be. I mean, in our passage, Paul is on this boat because way back in Acts 23, Jesus told him, hey, look, you need to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. And so if you're in Christ and you find yourself in the storm, that means that God has sovereignly placed you there. 
And since we know the character of God, we know his promises, we know that it's for two specific purposes. One, it's for your good. That God places you in the storm and brings hardship in your life for your good. And then also for your growth in godliness. So good and, and godliness. You know, just think about it, the, the good. It, you think about Joseph in the Bible. Remember, Joseph is one of the few people in the whole Bible that, for the most part, there's a lot of good things to say. We love Joseph, right? But Joseph's life wasn't always like that. If you remember, his early life was just one storm after another. You know, he was his dad's favorite. Have any of y'all ever been in a family where you're the favorite? Um, you know that anytime family, a family has favoritism, uh, it often breeds dysfunction within that family. Because Joseph grew up spoiled and his brothers grew up bitter. They hated Joseph. They couldn't stand him. And at the first opportunity, I mean, how much do you, gotta, how much do you have to hate your brother to like, I want to kill him, right? But they decided not to kill him. They decided to sell him into slavery. And so make a little money off of him. Can you imagine how much you got to hate your brother to sell him into slavery, right? And as a slave, Joseph was falsely accused. He was put into jail, and there in jail, he was betrayed, and he was forgotten. And for, I mean, for years, th- there was nothing good in his life. Nothing good. He, and yet, had he not had those storms, he wouldn't have been in a position later to save his people. You know, if all that bad had not happened, then neither would all the good that came from it. Because storms kind of transform you. Um, I, I, know, I know most of you know this, but if you've never really been broken, then you, you don't know yourself, right? I don't even know if you can relate to another human being truly, like if you've never been broken. You just come across as like the high schooler that never grew up, right? Uh, storms break you, and they make you better. And Joseph, when he finally saw his brothers again, he laid out the quintessential theology of storms if you are in Jesus. It's Genesis 50, 20. Joseph said, look, you meant this for evil. A lot of people meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. You know, God loves making good of messes. He, he's in the second chance business, even in the pain. Even when the, the clouds don't part for days and weeks and months, even if you're in the storm for decades, and there's times where we see no hope, no rest, no good. Even there, God is carefully with surgical precision doing something in your soul, making all things good. And so if you're in Christ, uh, storms will leave you better than they, they found you. Okay? It's good. But then there's the, the God, his growth in godliness. You know, storms, man, storms reveal idols. And storms, they're really good at knocking down those little sandcastles that we like to build. If we cling to our bodies, our homes, our athletic abilities, our jobs, our good works, storms are going to come, right? Uh, sickness invades. Uh, markets crash. Thieves will break in to steal, kill, and destroy what we're really worshiping. And it's really kind of like the, the big bad wolf. Remember that story? He huffed and he puffed and he blew the straw house down. All the pigs went to the stick house. Huffed and puffed, blew that house down. Forcing all the little pigs to run to the only shelter that was actually strong enough to see them through. You know, storms, y'all, they push us further in and further up uh, to Jesus. I love that line, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, 
My grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design. What's the design? For your dross to consume, your gold to refine. So storms provide perspective like few things can, that at the end of the day it kind of blows the chaff away and it leaves you with this realization that your greatest need, your true need, just so happens to be the very thing God gives you in the gospel, which is himself, which is how we'll close. You know, in storms, when the storms come, really all you, you just want someone to be there. They don't have to give you philosophical or theological treatises, just, just presence, just be there. Um, and Paul literally had that. Alone in a jail cell in Acts 23, Jesus showed up. Alone on a, on a boat about to sink, an angel of the Lord was with him. And did you catch what he said down in verse 23? He said, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. I love that. That's covenantal language. That when God enters into a relationship with his people, here's the promise. God promises, hey, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Okay? You, you belong to me and I, I belong to, to you. If you're, and this is aging, aging me. Um, 1985, if any of y'all were alive in 1985, there was this really obnoxious commercial that came on TV and it was called My Buddy. Y'all remember that, that cartoon, My Buddy and Me, Wherever I Go, He Goes. Remember that, that song? Um, that's it, right? That's what it is to belong. Wherever you go, God's going with you. And so Paul had that promise. He had God's presence in the middle of the storm, and it made all the difference for Paul. Well, Westminster, because of the cross... Like we can have the exact same thing. So when you're going through your, your storm, uh, we know that on the cross, when the storm of the universe was bearing down on Jesus, he could have left us high and dry. He didn't. He was there. For the joy that was set before him, he stayed. And since he was present in the storm of all storms, we can know with 100% certainty that he will be with us in all of our lesser, lesser storms. And so if you are in him, then you belong to him, and wherever you go, he goes. Okay? And mountain high or valley low, he will not forsake his own. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you uh, would come now and continue to remind us of your nearness, of your presence, even in the misery and challenges, and even the great times of this life, uh, remind us of your present. Uh, you're present with us in the storm. Um, Lord, remind us that the storms are here for our good and growth and godliness and your glory. And at the same time, that the paradox uh, of the storm, that, Lord, you work out your sovereign will um, often through the, the secondary means of, of what we do. You're so sovereign. Um, so, Lord, now as we, we kind of turn our attention to uh, the table, we ask that you would take these uh, common and everyday elements and that you would set them apart to be a means uh, of grace to your people. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel 
and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.